0: I uh, hope you uh, got your taxes done this week. It's past time if you did not. There's an old saying that says there's two certainties in life, death and taxes. So you know that. Well, I want to give you a, a similar saying this morning. There's only two ways for a marriage to end, death or divorce. Those are your two options. Now, I know there's Plenty of jokes that we could throw out at this point. But I remind you that uh, murder is also a sin. We talked about that a few weeks ago. So don't take that as your option. But either our marriages are going to be until death do us part, or they are going to be until divorce do us part. And statistics continue to tell us that it is roughly 50 50. That roughly half is one and half is the other. And that is true both in the church and in the surrounding culture. So as we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount, we find more hard truths from Jesus. Which means I need to remind you of what I said last week. Because we have to be very careful that... We don't gather together in praise on Palm Sunday and shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then we gather a week later on Easter Sunday and we all proclaim, he is risen, he is risen indeed. And then we hear some of the verses like the ones we are looking at this morning and we say to ourselves, well, I don't like that. I don't like what he has to say. He is out of touch with contemporary society. He just doesn't know what he's talking about when it comes to our lives in this day and age. And so not only do I not want to listen to that, but I certainly don't want to obey that. Two short verses this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. But oh, the difficulties these two verses have caused. The angst that this topic has brought to virtually every family that we come in contact with. It is a difficult subject indeed. It is a difficult subject because number one, it is a public issue. That is when someone does get a divorce, it is known around their friend group, family, and in some sense, society in general. As far as I know, they still publish this in the papers, though I do not read that section of the paper. It's not like the sin we dealt with last week, the sin of the mind, where we can lust in our minds and no one knows about it, and we can preach about that subject and walk out of the church, and no one knows who it was targeted to or who it was not targeted to. Not that I target a sermon to people, but I'm simply saying you can walk out of the church last week and not know who was impacted by that sermon, but such is not the case this week because this is a public issue. Secondly, it's a difficult subject because it is a popular issue. And by that I mean it is deemed to be a better alternative in the wider culture and, again, increasingly within the church in spite of the consequences. I mean, after all, doesn't God want me to be happy? And isn't my happiness better than remaining in a miserable marriage? This is a necessary subject, nevertheless, because people are still struggling in their marriages. And the message everywhere else, other than the Bible, is, well, if you're struggling, then just get out. Find someone else. That's the wider message we hear on a regular basis, but that is not the message of the Bible. And I'll just be honest this morning and say I would much rather be talking about some other subject. I mean, this is not a subject that I just get excited about preaching. Because I know at the very outset that I am speaking to some people who are divorced. I mean, if those statistics are true, then there's a good percentage of people that are listening to me who have already gone through divorce. Furthermore, I know that some of those who have gone through divorce are now remarried. And I know that there are likely some in the congregation who, though I am not aware of it, are on the verge of getting a divorce. Now, my purpose this morning is not to throw stones at anybody or to make you feel like a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin, and God does indeed forgive anybody who divorces who confesses their faith in him. My purpose today is help us to gain a biblical perspective on both marriage and divorce because we're going to talk about the wider issue and then to help us get a sense of the wonder and glory of the marriage covenant as instituted by God and our commitment in fulfilling that covenant. I intend to do this from several passages of scripture that I am acknowledging I would rather avoid that's one of the advantages of going through a book of the bible or in this case a section of scripture i can't skip over it you know we're going through the sermon on the mount and so had i skipped these two verses and gone to something else you would have asked me why i was doing that and by the way while i'm grateful that we are able to offer online streaming and our intent is to continue to do that and i'm grateful for the guys who make that a reality because i have no idea how that works One of the downfalls of watching online is that you can quickly turn this off. Perhaps some already have. They tuned in this morning, saw the verses that I'm looking at, understood what the topic is and said, I don't want to hear that. And that's one of the downfalls of only watching online because it's just like you and I when we watch television. If we don't like the program, it's very easy to turn it to something else. But we need to hear these things because this is an ongoing issue in our lives and in our society. We need to hear a theology on marriage and divorce from God's perspective because it does not really matter what the laws of the land say. Often those laws are unscriptural. They are laws that are bent to accommodate what's going on in our society, even as they were in Israel's day, and even as we will see in the very verses we are looking at this morning. But it is God's law and God's perspective that we ought to be concerned about. Now again, let me say at the outset that I'm talking about Christian marriage. What we're gonna talk about this morning is not for the wider society that does not follow Christ. This is the, the marriage covenant between God and those of us who are his children. And so we need to keep that in mind as we look at this because again, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount where the theme is your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. So our marriages must look different from the marriages of the wider society. All right, so let's look at these verses. Matthew chapter five, beginning in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now. Keep your Bibles open, because we are going to go to two other passages in the course of this sermon that are going to be background and emphasis for these verses. The first point I want to emphasize is that marriage is a lifetime covenant. Let's not begin our focus by looking at the exception. Let's begin our focus by looking at the design that God had for marriage from the outset. And to do that, one needs only to go back to the first marriage. Adam was created by God along with all of the animals. He was given the task of naming those animals, which was more than just an exercise in science. The naming of the animals said something about their character and makeup. Yet Adam found no other creature that was a suitable companion for him. And God even said that it was not good for man for him to be alone. So he put Adam to sleep, performed a minor surgery, and created woman out of man. God's solution was for one man to have one woman for one life. When Adam was alone, God said, I will create a woman for you. And this simple fact ought to put to rest, at least within the church, all of the nonsense that's going on in our society about relationships. I mean, those who claim that God is a loving God who sanctions same-sex marriages need to return to this passage and see that God designed it from the very beginning, one man, one woman, for one life. We could make the same statement about polygamy. Even though we do find polygamy throughout the Old Testament, that does not make it right. God had always wanted one man, one woman. And when Adam saw Eve, he said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Loosely translated, Adam was saying, this is it. This is the one I have been looking for. This is the companion and helpmate that I need. And as a result, there was no longer any need to search further. For Adam was satisfied in God's provision. And therefore, in the very next verse, we read God saying, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The word cleave means to be glued or cemented together. And certainly you can see in that word the idea of permanence. Furthermore, God goes on to say that they will become one flesh. And while that's a bit of a mystery to us, again, we can certainly see not only permanence, but we can see intimacy in that word. Such that God goes on to say, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. All of this makes marriage a divine institution. It did not originate with man. It originated with God. And therefore, God has a right to declare what marriage is about and how marriage is dissolved. And we are in the position where we are to let God speak and submit to what he says. Now, I said this is a marriage covenant. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. It is based on mutual promises and solemnly binding obligations. This is what you see, whether you understand it or not, when you attend a wedding. The two individuals are entering into an agreement, a covenant. And they are making promises and binding themselves one to another. We see multiple covenants in the Bible. We talked about this a little bit this past Wednesday night. We see a a covenant with Noah where God says, I will never again bring this on the earth. And the sign of that covenant was the rainbow. We see a covenant with Abraham, the covenant that God will make for him a people as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And the sign of that covenant was circumcision. There's a covenant with David. And that is that there will be a descendant on his throne eternally. And this is a covenant as well. Even salvation is a covenant between us and God, where God gives us salvation through his grace. But the marriage relationship is also defined as a covenant. And the key ingredient in this this covenant is faithfulness. Being committed irreversibly to fulfilling the covenant obligations that we have. The most important issue in marriage is not romance. It is not feelings, it is not emotions, it is faithfulness to the covenant vows even when the romance or the emotions fade. You see, when you and I stood at the marriage altar, we entered into a covenant relationship with our spouse as witnessed by those we invited to attend and by God himself, And in that moment, we declared that our relationship would continue until death do us part. Now, whether you said that line or not, traditionally we do. But if you chose not to say those lines, you were still making that commitment before God. And therefore, when a marriage ends in divorce, we are once again proclaiming loud and clear that we have broken our covenant. And God had never intended for this to be the case. Marriage was instituted as a lifetime covenant between one man and one woman. So let me say quickly to our singles that are present, this means it is a very important decision for you. Do not take it lightly. I know you think you're in love and everything is going to be roses from here on out. But this is a major decision that you are on the verge of embarking on And it is a lifetime decision, and therefore, you must not take it lightly, but must do so wisely and prayerfully. So marriage is a lifetime covenant, commitment. Secondly, we do want to look at the fact that divorce is a limited concession. That is, God does allow for divorce under certain circumstances, The ideal is a lifetime commitment, but we know that because of sin in all its various forms, we do not live in an ideal society, and therefore divorce is a limited concession. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, where similar statements are made, but this whole topic is expounded upon further. Matthew chapter 19. Now you may remember that we talked about adultery, not only physically, but mentally last week. And certainly adultery is a major issue because it does break that bond of intimacy. It is a major break in that relationship. And that's why it is to be taken so seriously. In fact, a, a, a part of the Christmas story that we often sort of gloss right over is that Joseph was going to divorce Mary, Right? When he was told that Mary was pregnant, his initial reaction was divorce. That was the only option. The only question on Joseph's mind was, should I do this publicly to shame her, or should I do this privately? But he had every intention of divorcing her because the only thing he could think of was was that she had committed sexual immorality against him, and therefore this relationship was over with. It was only when the angel came and told him otherwise that we have the rest of the story. And so we come to Matthew chapter 19 and we read these words in verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now, obviously, these passages of Scripture are similar. Matthew 19 just gives us a little more detail. The Pharisees had come to Jesus asking a question. Now, in reality, they were not the least bit interested in what Jesus or the Scriptures had to say. They were simply trying to trap Jesus. And they often did that with what they deemed to be hard questions, questions that in their mind, no matter how he answered them, he was going to be in trouble with a certain segment of the population. And so they thought they had him on this. Is it lawful to divorce your wife for every cause? Well, if Jesus were to answer yes, then he is a liberal who does not care what the scriptures have to say. If he says no, then he is an ultra conservative who doesn't care about the needs and the problems of the everyday people. And so they thought they had him right where they wanted him. And by the way, America continues to answer this question with a resounding yes. America says to the Pharisees' question, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any reason? And America says yes. And we've been doing that since 1970. I referenced two former presidents last week. I'll reference another this week. In 1970, Ronald Reagan, who was not the president at the time, but he was the governor of California. Ronald Reagan was the first to institute in the state of California what became known as no-fault divorces. And once it became law in California, over the years it began to sweep across the entire nation. And no-fault divorces is exactly what the phrase means. And that is you no longer had to have a reason to get a divorce. You no longer had to prove that there was an issue in your marriage. You no longer had to demonstrate to a judge that there was something that that meant you two could not live together anymore. You simply had to say, I don't want to be married anymore. No one to blame, no fault to go around, no questions asked. You could simply get divorced. Well, that's not how Jesus answered the question. Just like on many other occasions, Jesus immediately appealed to the word of God. He goes all the way back to the creation verses that I have already referenced this morning, and he quotes some of them. Had these religious rulers properly understood the word of God, they would have not even asked this question. But after hearing Jesus' response, they ask another question. They say, well, if that's the case, why then did Moses command a writing of divorcement? These men were experts in twisting the word of God to make it say what they wanted it to say, even as many are today. Moses has ne- had never commanded divorce. In fact, there is not a single time in all of Scripture where anybody commands divorce for any reason. Now, God, through Moses, did permit divorce, but only because of the hardness of their hearts. Now, just to be clear on this issue, let's go back Not to Matthew 5, but let's go back to the scripture that is referenced there, and that is Deuteronomy chapter 24. Now the last two weeks, we have been in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not uh, commit, thou shalt not kill, and thou shalt not commit adultery. So the first two examples in Matthew 5 reference the Ten Commandments, but this one does not. This one references Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And so I think it's important that we take the time and read these. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house... And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, this is the passage of scripture that has led to the debate between these two groups of Pharisees. There was a conservative and a moderate branch of Pharisees. One group said that divorce was limited to sexual unfaithfulness. That that was the only way you could write a certificate of divorce. The other group said that divorce was allowed for any reason. I mean, even trivial matters, it didn't matter. If she burned your dinner, you could send her away because you did not like her cooking. And that's not a joke, that's reality. That was what one branch of the Pharisees said. In ancient Judaism, women were rarely, if if ever, able to divorce their husbands. There was no Jewish law for a woman to initiate divorce. So the vast majority of these issues were men simply deciding that for whatever reason they didn't want to be married to this particular woman anymore, and so they would send her away. So what's going on in Deuteronomy is that Deuteronomy is not commanding divorce, rather Deuteronomy is saying if your hearts are so hardened that you're going to get a divorce, then you must do it in the right way. And that is they had to do it with a legal document a legal document that was witnessed by others in order to dissolve the marriage. And there were several reasons for this. Most of them, all of them really, designed to protect the women in this situation. One, it prevented men from making rash and hasty decisions. A divorce was not to be undertaken lightly. That is, you just didn't get mad one night and say, we're done. So you had to think about it because you had to go to court and you had to get a document. But most importantly, it protected the wife from unnecessary ridicule and shame because she now had in writing the fact that she had gotten a divorce. Previously, she had nothing to attest to her faithfulness in the marriage. And the Old Testament penalty for adultery was death. And so there would be the assumption that if the husband sent her away, it was because of sexual immorality, and therefore she carried around this shame and guilt. And so it was possible for everyone simply to assume that she was the guilty party. Furthermore, as you are surely aware, in that particular patristic culture, it would have been very difficult for her to make a living, for her to provide for herself and whatever children she had. And therefore, this allowed her to to remarry. This testified to her situation and then granted her the option that was most likely taken, and that is to remarry. Again, none of this was God's intention. But because of their hardness of heart, he allowed it. And in allowing it, it was for the protection of the women that were involved. The certificate did not make the divorce right. It simply gave women protection. Now, before you jump on this bandwagon and say, well, I'm going to apply this verse to to my situation, I remind you that if you claim that God has permitted your divorce, you are at least admitting a hard heart on one, if not both of the parties involved. Because he says, because of the hardness of your hearts. That is, again, the ideal was that your hearts would be softened and reconciliation would occur, but because of your hardness of heart, it was permitted. Furthermore, Divorce was always the last option. God may have allowed it. God may have permitted it, but God never commanded it. Reconciliation and loving forgiveness is always to be preferred. So we don't need to be looking for loopholes in our marriage biblically And looking for ways that I can get out of this situation, we need to be looking for ways that we can reconcile with our spouses and have the marriages that God intended for us to have. Even in the case of adultery, the godly thing for the innocent spouse to do is not jump up and down because I have a way out now, but to stay in the marriage and work for reconciliation. I referenced Hosea last week. Hosea is a picture of that. Even against repeated sexual immorality, Hosea was to be faithful to his wife. Now, I do need to say here the sexual immorality in this verse, we're back in Matthew chapter 5 now, is a broader term than adultery. It says, uh, except on the ground of sexual immorality. Adultery is a subset of sexual immorality, but sexual immorality is a broader term. Now, I am not going to get into what is included in that, Frankly, there could be some differences of opinion there and certainly some debate, and I don't have the definitive answer on that. So I'm not going to get into what qualifies as that, but I am simply going to acknowledge that he says sexual immorality, which is a general term for any kind of sexual sin. But I do want to say that divorce is always, without exception, the product of sin. Now, I did not say, hear me correctly, I did not say that every divorce is sin. Because he does say there are times when divorce is allowed, which means the divorce itself would not be a sin. But every divorce is the product of sin because God does not command divorce nor endorse it and certainly does not bless it. We have made divorce so easy and accessible that we fail to realize that it is the product of sin. We fail to realize that it is sin that has led up to this point in one or more than likely both of the parties. And rather than doing the work of reconciliation, many couples simply throw in the towel and say, we're not compatible. I remind you that incompatibility is not the reason Jesus gives here for allowing divorce. In fact, in some sense, aren't we all incompatible? I mean, don't we struggle to get along with everybody at some point, especially those we live with? So incompatibility is not the the grounds for divorce. Neither is falling out of love. How many times have I heard that? Well, we just fell out of love. I saw a movie some time ago that drove home this issue to me. There was a husband and a wife. They had gotten a divorce, and the man had a new girlfriend. The couple had two children before they divorced, one girl and one boy. And I suppose the boy was probably six or seven years old, and the little boy was talking to his father, and he asked his father why his mom and dad had split up. And his dad replied that they had simply fallen out of love. Again, a common answer for why people get divorced. And that little boy looked at his dad and said, well, are you going to stop loving me too? That's a pretty good statement, isn't it? I mean, that's a pretty good wisdom by a six- or seven-year-old boy that many adults don't seem to grasp. Because if you take this as the romance is gone, the love has faded, and therefore I'm going to get divorced, then that's a perfectly legitimate question for a child to ask. Dad, if you can stop loving mom, what's to say you're not gonna stop loving me? And that's exactly what that little boy was saying. When we break that commitment, we are making that statement, if that's the words we use, Again, mark it down. Jesus gives one and only one reason for allowing divorce, and that is sexual immorality. It is not that we are falling out of love. It is not that this is too difficult. It is this one thing. Well, then the question comes up, what about remarriage? And Jesus does say something about that. Back in chapter 5 in verse 32, he says, The one that leaves the marriage except for that exception— commits adultery. And anyone who marries someone in that predicament does the same thing. So let me sum this teaching up by saying a man or woman who has no right to divorce has no right to remarry. That's the teaching of Jesus. And I know we don't like that. And I know society doesn't teach that. And I know the church has largely gone away from that as well. But I think that is the clear teaching of Jesus here, that unless heaven has granted your divorce, heaven has not granted you the right to remarry. The court system might, society might, but the judge in heaven does not. Now, I know you're going to say, well, you don't know how bad my marriage is, and I don't. You don't know how dead my marriage is, and I don't. But if you come to me and you're looking for someone to give you the green light to go ahead and get out, that's really not what I do in counseling. Now, I will say, of course, that there are women who are physically abused. And I do not believe that God desires for a woman to be abused by her husband. And if that is your situation, you need to get help. And you need to get help quickly. You don't need to justify it. You don't need to say he's going to change. You need to get help. I do realize that there are homes where children are afraid when dad comes home because dad is angry and takes out that anger on them. And I do not think that God desires for children to live in that environment. Again, if that's your situation, you need to get help. But I'm not saying that you need to get an immediate divorce. You need to separate. You need to get out of that situation immediately so that you are not in physical danger. And then you need to work on that somehow. And we can help you get in contact with people who know far more about that than I do. And so I'm not blind to those situations. They do occur. And yes, they do occur within the church. I realize there are other situations as well. Even mentioned in the Bible, I mean, Paul talks in the the letter to the church in Corinth about an unbeliever leaving a believer. Again, I remind you, I said at the outset that this is about Christian marriage. And so if there is an unbeliever, unequally yoked, and the unbeliever walks away, Paul says, let him go. I realize that we have the whole issue of someone getting married, maybe even divorced and remarried prior to conversion. And that's an entirely separate matter. Because once we come to faith in Christ, old things have passed away. We are new creations. But I don't have the time to get into all of that. So I want to conclude by saying that God issues a loving command because a sermon like this brings up all kinds of questions. Questions like, well, what am I supposed to do now? Maybe you've realized that in the past, your divorce was a sin. It was not a biblical divorce, but that divorce is already done. Maybe you're already even remarried. What do I do now? Where do I go from here? And in answer to that, I want to show you that God issues a loving command. It is based on Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. She had had five marriages, if you know that story. And when Jesus was talking with her, she was currently living with a man who was not her husband. And Jesus confronts her with all of that. But then he forgives her. And he lovingly says, go and sin no more. Not that she would be perfect, but he's talking in that context. Don't keep doing this. Go and sin no more. So I'm not encouraging you to divorce your current spouse and go back to your first spouse. Uh, I don't think two wrongs make a right. The wonderful promise of the gospel is that God takes us where we are. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And God is willing and able to forgive all of those sins. So what I am saying to many people who are divorced and remarried is that you just need to deal with your sin. You need to treat it like any other sin. And that is you need to confess it. You need to admit that maybe you didn't have biblical grounds for a divorce, and yet you did it anyway. Confess it and know that God forgives. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which means you don't have to keep walking around with all the shame and the guilt. If you've dealt with it, God's dealt with it, there's no reason to keep living in the past. And so my focus is that whatever marriage you're in now, work on it, make it the best possible marriage that you can have. This is all a loving command. I know this sounds harsh in these two verses, but why does God say this? Because God wants the ideal to be a reality in our lives. He wants our marriages to be the kind of marriages that he instituted to begin with. And what kind of marriage is that? Well, there's multiple options. I mean, is marriage primarily about pleasure? If it is, then if the one I have now is not pleasing me, then I can go find someone else. If a marriage is primarily about procreation, that is having children, well, what if my spouse can't have children? well, then I can just get rid of them and go find someone who can. If marriage is primarily about passion, and there's no longer any passion in my relationship, then I can just go find somebody else and reignite that passion, and preferably somebody younger. But if marriage is primarily about a picture of Christ in the church, then I don't have that option. And isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5? He's talking about marriage there. It's a passage we often read at weddings. Wives, you're to do this. Husbands, you're to do this. And then at the end of that, Paul says something very strange. He says, but I'm really not talking about marriage at all. Though, of course, he is. He says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. That marriage is a picture of our relationship with Christ and the church that Christ has a, an unending covenant with the church, that he's going to love us eternally. And our marriages are supposed to depict that. We're supposed to be a picture to the world of the fact that Christ is always going to love his church even as we love our spouse. And that's one of the major reasons why our marriages need to end in death rather than divorce. Because we need to be a picture to the world of the unending love of Christ for his children. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for your word even when it is difficult to hear. Even when we don't like what we hear. But may we not be like those we talked about last week who said, this is a a difficult saying and hard to hear and they turned and walked no longer with you. May we continue to walk with you even when the words are hard because we know that you have the authority to speak them and our responsibility is to obey. And I do pray today that this congregation has heard my heart and that is, I want marriages that are strong. I want marriages that are a picture of, of your relationship with the church. I want my marriage to be like that, and I want every Christian marriage to be like that. My heart is not to condemn those who have, who have made decisions in the past, but my heart is to encourage every marriage in this room and every single person listening to help them understand how serious this is so that they choose wisely and prayerfully and that we become marriages that depict your love for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. Regardless of your marital situation or how strong or weak your marriage is, I leave you with these words that are applicable for every believer. For God alone, oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people, pour out your heart before him. Because God is a refuge for us. You're dismissed.